Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. This new solar generator has double the capacity and is expandable, so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas, ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot Power Generators. Go to 4patriots.com tutor to get your solar generator. Generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to fourpatriots.com slash tutor. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Welcome to the Tudor Dixon podcast. Today, we are going to dig into the impact of the crisis at the border. But now it's well beyond the border. We've all heard about the migrants that are being sent to New York and Chicago and all of these other big cities. But the question is, what's really going on on the ground in those cities? Well, it turns out some of the residents are fighting back against this. And one of those women is Kata Tress. She is one of those who is fighting against local resources being rerouted to migrants over residents. Kata is a 57-year-old mother on the west side of Chicago who actually sued the city of Chicago over their handling of the mi- migrant crisis. And she is here with us today. Kata, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you are in this situation. And I think for those of us who are on the outside, a lot of us are watching and saying, well, what is this like for the people who are being impacted every single day? And you had that situation where they were taking a center that your boys had actually used to play with friends for sports and and things like that. And they were going to turn this over to a migrant shelter. And then tell us a little bit about that. What what made you say, you know what, enough is enough? Well, one of the first things that happened was the fact that we were upset about is the fact that no one really sat down with the community to ask us about that. Mm. So I live in the Austin community over on the west side. And there are at least four major parks in the area. And there are parks, all of the parks have programs going on in them. But the Amundsen Park, where my children grew up playing football, where our seniors go every day to communicate and fellowship with each other, um, that was the park that they were talking about closing. It is one of our most used parks. 
um, as opposed to some of the other parks. And had there been some kind of conversation, we could have possibly come up with some sort of happy medium. But because the city just decided to arbitrarily take the park, not have a conversation with the residents there, and just say, hey, listen, we're going to take this park. The migrants need it, and there's nothing that you can do about it. And so they were just going to turn it, would they have put up tents or what was going to happen there? We're not sure what was going to happen exactly. I didn't even tell you? Look at, no, no, they did not. But if you look at all of the other migrant areas, so they're inside of those facilities, they have tents outside of the facilities. And I'm sure that once there were too many people inside, that there quite possibly would have been tents outside. And then you fought back against this. So it didn't actually happen, right? Well, no. Well, you know what we decide we hit. So they the city came out and they was, you know, to tell us about their plan. And when we found when they scheduled the meeting to come out and tell the community what was happening, we rallied ourselves together. We made phone calls um, so much so that we had over a thousand people to show up for a community meeting, basically to say to the city that this is our park. We didn't even really allow them to tell us what kind of plans they had because we just didn't care. We had just <laughs> right, decided it's that yours. We're, not, we're not giving our park up. And so I got up the next day. I went over to the Circuit Court of Cook County and I filed a motion um, to have a judge to look at this case. And then you ended up winning the case, right? Well, I don't I won't say that we won the case, but I think that we pushed enough for the city to think about not necessarily using the park. So what happens is you file a motion, we had to hire an attorney, the attorney came in, she went into court, we we went in with her and basically what they said was that we really couldn't do anything unless the city decided to bring migrants in. And so, you know, although we filed the lawsuit, we were, we had to press out every single day. We had marches every day. We had people who camped out, who uh, took post overnight to make sure that the migrants didn't come. And so we never really had to do anything because the city realized that we were not playing hmm. and we were not going to back down. So just out of curiosity, when you started, I mean, I think maybe I'm wrong about this, but I really started hearing about the border having this crisis when Donald Trump was running the first time. It was like this was a topic of conversation. We started to hear that the border was open. Too many people were coming in. And I think that at that time, those of us who were tuned into politics were paying attention. But I just am curious, do you think that that many people in you're in the community of Chicago were paying attention to this or like, you know, northern communities that really weren't seeing this happen. It was really staying down south. Do you think that people were paying attention to the politics of an open border back then? We were paying attention. Um, but you know how you hear people say it really doesn't affect you until it hits home. Yeah. And so we were paying attention. Um I was watching what was happening at the border. I had concerns even then. But like I said, until it begins to affect where you live. And it's just like, you know, when you listen to Governor Abbott, a lot of people have made him the boogeyman. You know, this is his problem. He shouldn't have sent these people here. But what people have to think about is just think about what we have coming to Denver. 
the migrants we have coming to New York and the migrants we have coming to Chicago. And just think that all of those people were at some point staying in Texas. Mm -hmm. And Governor Abbott had the responsibility of trying to find someone for those people, some place for those people to stay on his own. Right. No help from the government. I I think it's amazing that you say it that way. I think that's so well said because I was in New York a few months ago and I was sitting there talking to a woman I just met and she said to me, I just don't understand why Governor Abbott is doing this because New York is such a small place and Texas is such a big place. Why won't he just keep them in Texas? And I thought it's not it's not so much a political ploy or or a trick. It's that if you are the ones that are out there, Mayor Adams and Mayor Johnson saying, we want to have all these people come to our city, be careful what you wish for. You know, you should you should know what it really is. And I think he was making exactly what you said, making the point of, hey, I have to try to juggle this every day. You guys need to take up some of this slack to help me out. And I don't even think it was taking up some of the slack. I think that I I remember um, uh, Mayor Lori Lightford, our former mayor, um, standing up and saying, well, you know, we're the city of big shoulders and, you know, they can come here. You know, we can handle it here in Chicago. I remember her standing mm-hmm. there saying that and having a back and forth. And, and so you had some of the mayors of cities that were sanctuary cities being very critical of some of the comments that Abbott was making. And so when he started sending migrants to these different places that had sanctuary cities who wanted to protect migrants and didn't want them to be deported, I kind of understand it. Yeah, I yeah, no, I agree. Saying, I can, we can take it, we can handle it. And so he began sending them. And like, you know, all of a sudden we're demonizing him and the migrants, but you know, we have to do a better job of making sure that our legislators and our elected officials are looking at these issues and are dealing with this these issues. And, you know, one of the biggest things that happened from this situation for me is the fact that I began to see that my Democratic elected officials were basically sitting on their hands. And mm-hmm. the people are saying one thing, and you guys are doing something completely opposite of what the people are saying they want. Well, that actually just recently really happened in Chicago because there was an opportunity for a vote on whether or not to be a sanctuary city. And Mayor Johnson, he did some political shenanigans, really, to get that off the ballot and say the people of Chicago don't get to choose. But when you look at the situation that you're in, doesn't this seem like exactly why we have this method of government where it's we the people and we do get to choose? You would think. Um, and, and the fact that our mayor worked so hard to take the, away the right for the voters to make that choice is really a problem for me. And I, you know, I, I think about the fact that he didn't want us to make the choice on the sanctuary city, but now we're having to make a choice on this bring Chicago home that's supposed to put monies aside for the homeless, but there's no language in that bill to make sure that it goes to the homeless who've already been here. Mm. And so that like means resi- that people sure that are actually Americans. 
I'm sure that they're probably going to rubber stamp that money and send it right to the migrants if we allow it to pass. And so now mm -hmm. in Chicago, we're pushing to have that ordinance turned down because again, we're, I think that if we allow ourselves to continue to give the city money to spend on someone other than us, they're going to do it. And so this is going to be our way of stepping in and saying, well, we didn't get a chance to vote on the sanctuary city, but we do have a chance to vote on this initiative to make sure that you are not taking our tax dollars and giving them to people who don't live here or who have not worked support into the system. I think, you know, we sat here on the other side of the lake in Michigan and watched that election for mayor. And I remember people going, why the most progressive one? Why choose the person who doesn't have the best interests of the community at heart? But I do, and I, I hear people all the time say, well, they voted for it. But look, I'm in Michigan and people get voted in that I didn't choose, clearly, obviously, since I ran, right? So I just wonder if there's still that mentality of we just vote for a party rather than really digging into candidates. And I think that that happens on both sides. Don't get me wrong. I think that happens on both sides, depending on where you are in the country. Do you see a shift in people across the country saying, you know what, I'm done just voting because I've always voted a certain way. Now it's time to really dig into what people are saying. You will see a shift, and that's one of the things that I've been talking a lot about. Um, this this taught me a lesson. Um, first of all, I supported Brandon Johnson. I voted for Brandon Johnson. I voted on him primarily because he was someone I knew. Um, mm -hmm. I knew him. We, you know, had a relationship, or so I thought. And 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 not to make it personal, but when you have a relationship with people and you go out and you support them and you get them elected and then you see that your voice matters very little or if at all to them then you have to do something differently and basically what this situation taught me is number one you can't vote for people you know you can't vote vote ethnicity at this point you really can't even vote party because you just never know what you're going to get. And I think that voters have to begin to be smart and vote candidates that best speak to our self-interest. And they may be Republican and they may be Democrat. They may be Green Party. They may be independent. But one of the great things about America is the fact that we have the right to choose. And because we have the, the right to choose, I think that people need to stop being so locked into party and people and people that we know and, and, and ethnicity, you know, race, color. You know, we look at all of those things that really should not play a part because if a person does not represent your best self-interest, then we're doing ourselves a disservice by voting for them. And so that's the biggest lesson I walked away with this time. Well, can I ask you... I mean, maybe this is, I don't know, maybe you're not allowed to ask these questions, but I am just going to ask it. Um, when you, when your community, Chicago as a community has historically voted Democrat, I mean, that just seems to be the, the way Chicago goes. It's a blue city. We always think of it as a blue city. 
what is it that you hear from Republican politicians in Chicago that you don't like? I think that that's something that a lot of people who listen to this podcast would go, oh, man, hmm, we could learn something. Republicans here in Chicago. And the only thing about the Republican Party that I don't like in the past is it seemed like it was so hate. There was so much hate being spewed. Mm -hmm. And that was an issue for me. And But I think that if we come together, because that's not the sentiment of most Americans. And a lot of times we let the sentiment of the few change the trajectory of what we do. And I think that there are definitely more good people in this world than bad. And I think if I would say anything to the Republican Party, I would say, I realize that there is a base that you like to speak to, but given what's happening in the country now, that won't be the majority of the people who might support you. So if it means maybe pulling a back from some of the views that we've had that may have been offensive to others, then we certainly might want to do that. Let's take a quick commercial break. We'll continue next on the Tudor Dixon podcast. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So tell us, I mean, if you're willing to, tell us what that is. Like, what exactly are you you talking about? Because I do really believe that there are people that want to hear it and or that need to hear it. 
there there's two groups. There's one that needs to hear it, and there's one who wants to hear it and doesn't know how to ask the question. Well, so there's there's several things. I think that um, historically, um, most blacks black Americans have felt like the Re- Republican Party um, was biased toward our our race. And I think that in some cases there that happens in the South when you um, look at what's happening with Persian voter rolls and voter ID and, you know, some of the ways that they've gone in and changed the Voting Rights Act in the South. That definitely, you know, is an issue for a lot of blacks. But by the same token, I think that there are some things about the Republican Party that you know, we can get with, especially now, because the crisis at the border is certainly something that has um, a lot of blacks looking at the Democratic Party saying, you know what, you all are not listening to us, and we may need to do something different. So for those people who may be on the fence, because, you know, you have a lot of people saying, well, we're just going to sit it out and we're going to stay home. But I think if the Republican Party Mm -hmm. thought about softening some of the views, then those people who were talking about sitting it out may just come out and take a Republican ballot. And I know here in Chicago, there are a lot of people saying we have to do something different. I don't know if I can repull that Republican string yet, but I do know that something different has to happen. And so I think this is such a great opportunity for the Republican Party, you know, to really pull in. And and as I've said myself, I absolutely will not be voting Democratic Um, this upcoming election. And that's just the impact that it has had on me. And that's not just my sentiment. But I do think that if the Republican Party would soften some of the views, maybe back back a little bit on abortion and allow the states to make that decision, I think that those are things that will bring people in. Women want the right to choose. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm getting into that issue, but those are things. No, that- I mean, that's what I think that that's what I think that the Republican Party hasn't heard. They haven't heard somebody from the community say, look, we want this. This is what it you know, we're afraid you were going to take this. And I mean, certainly in my race, we heard all kinds of different views on that. I don't I don't think anybody had a full understanding of where the country stood on that because Roe v. Wade always was there. You know, nobody really had a a true finger on the pulse of where people felt that abortion should be. And and that really, I, I mean, trust me, I lived it. I know how much that hurt the Republican Party. And I've heard you say, or I've, my understanding is that you've said, that you don't think that people will just become Republicans and you don't think that should happen. You feel like there should be an independence to people that they should choose based on the person. And I kind of like that idea that you have people who are not, you know, historically we have been locked into party. And it's interesting to hear someone in in your position who obviously you and I have been in, in different parties, right? But to say, wow, I'm, I'm not going to switch over, but I'm ready to step back. And I find that interesting because when I was campaigning, Tulsi Gabbard came to Michigan 
And we had long talks about this, and she was like, look, I'm not a Republican, but there are times when I, I see that point of view, but I, I'm an independent. You know, I'm, I am walked away from the Democrats, but it's not because I was ready to go, oh, but I belong here. And I think that's where we haven't had that conversation with people. It's okay to not have a party. It's okay to be in the middle and decide person by person. I think that we have to have more conversations like that. I think that we really, as a people, have to step away from voting party or, or being married to party. Because I think that when you're married to party, party, both parties will take you for granted. But I think that when they know that people have the ability to switch up or to do differently from what their grandparents done, you know, because, you know, you have these families. Well, my entire family votes Republican or my entire family has voted Democratic for years like my family and just being able to be free enough to say you know what it's not about party who best represents my goals my needs my desires my ideals that's the candidate that we want to support it's interesting because we have uh someone in michigan one of our uh, I think she's a state rep, um, Mallory McMorrow. And she just came out and said that after, I mean, it's just the timing. She didn't say this part, but the timing of after the Detroit Lions almost made it into the Super Bowl, she said she would like to put an entertainment tax in Detroit. So she wanted to pass a bill in the state house that would say Detroit could add an entertainment tax. And I just think, Why? Why, why another tax? Why would you be able to say, I'm, I want to introduce a bill to tax another city? It just allowed this one city to put a tax. So what is an entertainment tax too? How far does that go? Are we talking about casinos? Are we just talking about games? Are we talking about movies? How, what do we consider entertainment? And then that just expands. And I see these things and I think, if I look at just the taxes and licensing fees and permitting fees, and I were to break up all the cities in the, the state of Michigan, Detroit is the worst. It has the most fees. It's the most difficult. And it is probably one of our strongest black communities. And yet they continue to vote for people who allow them to have more money taken out of their paychecks every month. And I'm like, is it that they're sneaking these things in? Because I do think that I'm hypersensitive now, not, and I wasn't, but now to these bills that they're putting in where there's a, a tweak and a tax here and a tweak and a tax there. But, but why aren't people in that community stepping inside, stepping back and saying, wait a minute, we have twice as many taxes as the folks on the other side of the state. What the heck is going on? You'll have people who'll say that and they'll say it in public conversations, but then what is the alternative? So mm -hmm. the alternative is either, mm -hmm. and especially if you're talking about a predominantly black community. And so if the alternative is to vote Republican or vote for the tax, then you'll find that most of those people are Democrats and they'll vote for the tax because they're voting Democrat, not necessarily because they want to be taxed. But the, in their, the mindset is I'm going to do what I've always done, even though I'm expecting a different outcome. 
which is the definition of insanity, let me just say, to do the same thing and expecting something different, which is why it's so important for me to begin saying to voters all over this country, stop going along with the party, especially if the party is working against you. We have to stop that. We have to stop saying, well, you know, historically, this is what my family has done. No, this person is trying to tax you and you are already paying the highest taxes in the entire state of Michigan. Stop it, stop it. Mm -hmm. We have to stop as people in this country voting party voting party has not benefited us whether you are democrat or republican but when we really start getting ourselves together and in the mindset of voting for a person and what they stand for it's going to make the world of difference i think I mean, you're right. If you look back, I mean, a Mayor Daley is different than a Mayor Lightfoot is different than a Mayor Johnson. And yet you're looking at all Democrats. Right. So every every administration has been very different. I mean, it is hard to know when someone is making you promises and you made a great point. You knew him. And why wouldn't he have your voice and and your needs top of mind? It's just it is very hard also because I think elected officials can be manipulated by special interests as well, because you have all of these people that are, I got you here. I did this for you. What are you going to give me back? I mean, there is some crony capitalism in there that is a challenge as well. And that's why I think that we as the voters have to hold these people accountable. That's why I think the fact that you were bold enough to say, hey, I'm going to sue the city. And you are among, I think, six other lawsuits where people said, no, we're done. That, to me, is where we start to see change. And that, to me, is you being more valuable than anybody out out there that is serving because you're holding the servant accountable. And, and it's so important that people are aware that you can hold the servant accountable because I think people go, oh, they're elected. And I think people also forget that they're not up here. They are right here at the same level as you are. They are the ones that are supposed to be helping you. These are not famous people. They're servants of us. And so I love the fact that you were bold because I've heard this in so many cases. I've heard this when it's come to even... We had a, a um, two parents on here where their child had the school had done something behind the, their back with their child. And they said, we sued the school and suddenly the school stopped hiding things from parents. And it's like, you know, sometimes it's not about who you elect. It's about who in your community is bold enough to hold that elected official accountable. That's it. That's, you know what? And that's the bottom line. We have to hold them accountable. And by continuing to go out and to vote along party lines, it takes away that accountability, which is why you have so many people now really looking at the Democratic Party and saying, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You guys have been failing us for years. At some point, we have to stop and say no. We're not going to continue to take this. We're not going to continue to elect people who are not supporting our best interests. We have to stop that. Mm. And I think, let me tell you, 
I had a call from a gentleman yesterday, found my number from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and he said that he heard my um, heard me on someone's show, and he said that we are listening, and he was calling from Michigan. So people are listening, and, and I think that you're going to begin to see, and it may not be a big shift, but there's going to be a shift because I think that people all over the country now are really taking a step back and looking at our candidates, looking at who they are, what they are saying, what their platforms are, what things they've supported in the past, because that's going to let you know where they stand. And we're going to start paying more attention, you know, even to, and I tell people this all the time, when we're electing judges, how many times do you see people take the list of judges and go <laughs> in and do any, many, many, mo? Those are some of the most important people that you're going to elect. That's we right. Have to take the time. Pay attention. What kind of cases did they work when they were attorneys? What was their um, completion rate? All of those factors we as educated voters must start paying attention to. Prosecutors, district attorneys, all yes. of these. Yes. And I don't think that, you know, maybe, I, maybe I'm unique, but I obviously we're both saying the same thing because I don't think historically people have really dug into those positions. It's like, okay, that person's a trained that's a trained position. They know what they're doing. Whoever it is is going to know what they're doing. But lo and behold, we find out that suddenly we're not actually prosecuting crime. And I think that's been a real wake up call for people to. I mean, I, earlier this week, we spoke with a gentleman who is just an amazing guy, grew up in um Philadelphia in the 60s. And he was like, we never worried about safety. We never worried about whether we could go to the shop down the street. He was like, it makes me sad to think that now we have to worry about safety. I mean, we're we were just talking about the anniversary of the students on Michigan State's campus who were shot in cold blood on campus. And how that could have been prevented had we been tougher on crime. But what is a society if we are not making sure that people who convict crimes are stopped from doing it? Exactly. And not to mention the fact, you know, one of the things that, you know, we have an issue with here in Chicago is gun violence. And we still don't want to change gun laws. You know, I, I, I know that the IRA is powerful, but are they more powerful than the voices of the people? And if they are, why? Why are we making laws to prevent the amount of guns that are on the streets or that are ending up in the wrong hands? There has to be a way for us to stop this. Let's take a quick commercial break. We'll continue next on the Tudor Dixon podcast. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast is 
NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. How do you stop it? Because the majority of the guns you're talking about have been bought and sold illegally. And they've been they've been picked up illegally. So how do you how do you do that? I mean, there's so many. Honestly, there are so many discussions that I feel like we really need to sit down and unpack as a group. And it's like one of the you know, when you were little, you all sat around table and you were like, okay, we have a problem. We don't leave the table until we solve the problem. Come back and tell us what the solution is. And we're not we're struggling so hard to come to the table. And I think that for people who don't live in, a, in an area where they experience gun violence or understand what it is to have that threat out there and to have that constant concern, it's like out of sight, out of mind. It's a really hard conversation to have if you're not sitting there with someone who's going, you don't get it. You don't live it. You don't see what it's like. And And maybe that's where... People haven't seen what it's like. They haven't been able to understand from the perspective of living it. I think that there are so many issues. Um, I think that it goes back to mental health. Um, you, we got to deal with mental health. We have to deal with um, how we're handling crises in communities. Hurt people hurt people. And so... Mm. You know, if you have someone who has had a loved one that was taken by gun violence, the best thing to do is to make sure that those people are getting the necessary um, tools to handle that grief. Because if they don't, then you, you get this continuous cycle. You know, someone killed my brother, my sister, my cousin, so now I need to retaliate. And, and so you go into this vicious cycle that just goes around and around and around. And, and that's what we face here in the inner city. So there are so many conversations that have to be had. And I think that it, it takes us 
bringing people from out of different areas and different communities and putting them together so that they can have conversations. Because if you live in Connecticut, that's probably not your reality. And you probably don't understand even why these things are happening the way that they are. But if you're someone from Connecticut talking to someone from Detroit, from Chicago, from Memphis, then they have a better idea of what is happening and why it's happening because you're talking to people who are in the midst of it. We don't spend enough time getting people who are going through things together with people who have never experienced those things so that they can have an understanding. And so when those people are not in the same rooms and not at the same tables and not having the same conversations, there's no wonder that they don't understand each other. And we don't do a good job of making we, sure that those lines cross. A few years ago, I was on a jury and it was two young men and they were, gosh, the one guy was, they were both in their 20s and they had stolen. I mean, it was a terribly stupid crime, to be honest. They had stolen marijuana from another house and they had used the gun to hit them. They didn't shoot the gun. They used the gun to, to hit them. But the question was really, did they did they both have a gun? Did one of them have a gun? And that was what we really had to decide. Were they guilty of this? And it was and I remember it was another woman and me and the jury who were like, I I cannot place the gun there. I just don't I don't feel like I have enough evidence to place the gun. And, you know, it's funny because when you're on a jury, you don't know actually what the sentence will be. You don't know what's going to happen to these two guys. And I don't know their history, right? So all I know is there's two young guys. And when we left, and it was uh, the whole community was there because these two men were loved among the community. And when we left, when we finally came out and decided that they were both guilty, I was very obviously visibly upset, I guess, because we had to be walked to our cars afterward. And when the guy who from the court was walking me to my car, he said, what you don't know about this case is that both of their fathers are in prison and their un the one gentleman's uncle just attempted to kill a cop. And he said, you have to understand something. They didn't have opportunity. Like they were never going to be able to be a part of society because they had always been in this cycle of violence. They were always involved in these gangs and they, this young kid, what you don't know was the leader of this, this local gang in the community and his kids will probably get dragged into the same kind of life. And that, that has, in that moment, I was like, no, why? Okay, but how do I peel back the layers of this onion and say, but why? Is it because they didn't have the, the opportunities in school? Were there not after school programs? Was there no place for kids to play? Like, how does this happen? I just, I think that having not lived that lifestyle growing up, I'm like, there's got to be some way to let them have fun and play and be kids before this happens. A lot of times it's a continuous cycle. And so when you look at the family life, there may have never been an opportunity for him to um, be go on a straight and narrow because of what he was exposed to. You are your community. You are the people that you are around. You adapt based on what you are seeing or what you're hearing. 
in your community. So if that was his family's life, you talked about his uncle and his father, that was the life that he had around him. And so the gentleman was probably right because unfortunately, we didn't step in earlier to make sure that things got settled. I asked our um, new superintendent a couple of days ago, I asked him because here in Chicago, most of the crimes, including violent crimes, that are being committed as of late are by young people between the ages of 12 and 25. Oh. And so what I asked him was, when you pick these offenders up for the first time, what kind of interaction is there with the parent? Are you guys going into the home, talking to mom and dad, finding out what's happening? Is there a substance abuse problem? Is there a problem where the parent is uh, lacking education, where the parent does not work, where the parent is struggling? Because all of those are usually factors that will cause a child to be out committing crimes. So when we pick these young people up who are 12, 11, 12, 13, 14, what kind of mechanisms are in place to help the parents as well as the young people? Because the fact of the matter is, if we can put those kids in all of the programs we want to, but if we're not fixing the entire family, what's happening at home, we're basically taking him out putting a Band-Aid on, and then sending him back in to have the wound reapplied. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, these two guys, it was like, it was so devastating because they were both, it was, gosh, they, they were on each, like, their 20th felony. And yeah. so when they got, when they were sentenced months later, they were both sentenced to 30 years. And I, and I mean, this was years ago, and it's still... Like, I still think about it all the time. I'm like, these these guys had kids, little kids. Like, each of them had three or more kids, and those kids will never know their dads. And realistically, you know, even with those young men who went to jail, when that happens, do we go to these mothers of these kids? Do we offer them hmm. counseling? Do we, uh, because, you know, one thing about it, having a child go to jail is almost the same as losing a child because they're never the same. They don't come back the same. Mm -hmm. You really lose your young people. So what kind of services are we providing to those families? Or are we just continue? You know, so there are so many factors. Yeah. Wow. I could actually talk to you about all of this stuff for hours. I mean, it has been so just nice to be able to have this open conversation. And I feel like there's an opportunity to just continue to try to explore because I think that we just, we as Americans, there's so many different life, lifestyles. You know, you have people out West, you have people out East. I mean, we are really a diverse country. But yeah. how much do we talk to each other? So I I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you coming on today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, I suspect we are going to see a lot more of you. Kata Trust, thank you a lot. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for joining us on the Tudor Dixon Podcast. For this episode and others, go to TudorDixonPodcast.com. You can subscribe right there or head over to the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts and join us next time on the Tudor Dixon Podcast. Have a blessed day.
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.